0: Recording has begun.
1: Woohoo! Okay,
0: I'll do the intro. Yeah.
2: Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval
0: geeks spout off. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bilge Pumps episode 73. We are currently operating at about half effectiveness because, <laughs> as you might be able to tell, um, I'm recovering from having lost my voice, and I lost my voice on the day we normally do the recording. So, um, due to that, unfortunately, Jamie is not able to be with us today, but I'm sure he'll be back next week. Uh, so, in the interim, you have the uh, questionable. Mercies of myself, <laughs> Drakinophel, operating at half power, and of course the full power Dr. Clark. So, if you happen to have a dialable <laughs> volume control, you may wish to enable it.
2: <laughs> oh, it's fun times.
0: I I mean, Dr. Know. Clark is going for a <laughs> Blessed Successor, so <laughs> you have been warned. <laughs> oh. It's fun times mm. so today we have two main topics to discuss uh we've had one of you wonderful listeners well, a few of you but one of you in particular came in with a request for us to talk a little bit more about the long war um,
2: and yeah it, it, it was a kind of interesting request because it came in the same day i'd been having a conversation with an academic colleague and they'd been sitting there telling me how the uh, the weapons were so powerful these days it would not be like sort of anything like world war two or world war one at sea and i went well yes it, I, I agree for about the first two weeks of any peer conflict and they looked at me and went what do you mean for about the first two weeks i went well at that point we we run out of missile stocks and we're back to guns <laughs> uh because he and even actually here's the other thing uh then someone sort of reported out who said torpedoes and i went yeah but modern torpedoes aren't exactly quick to build either
0: because yeah, modern torpedoes are, are <coughs> to be close honest. Modern torpedoes are somewhat closer to. Um... Thank you, BBC. I did <laughs> not need that. Modern torpedoes are kind of in a lot of ways closer to Japanese kite end than they are with to World War One torpedoes. They are. Yeah. Effect, the only the only real difference is that the um, torpedoes are normally well these days at least are guided by silicon and electricity rather than a human but but yeah. they are effectively well they're self-guiding but a the modern torpedo is much closer to a kamikaze mini sub than uh than a world war one torpedo usually is
2: and um, the other topic which actually does fit you into submarines we're going to talk about <laughs> Is metallurgy of Subdesign.
0: Yes. So I thought we'd probably we, lead in with that one because. We will
2: lead into that one yeah. or with that one because then, uh, honestly, the long war, you are probably going to hear us talking about
0: politicians a lot. And it appeals to me as an engineer, which means I get to say something before my voice dies again. Yes. <laughs> um, so for those of you who, who may have missed it, a, a testing engineer in the US is currently facing a rather interesting series of charges because it turns out that for quite a while several decades in fact she's been faking the results of a rather important test that the U.S. Navy's demands be done on all of its steel particularly in this case the steel that's used for producing submarine pressure hulls and as a result the supposedly passed tests were in fact not passed and now nobody actually knows how well the subs will hold up which is a bit of a problem <laughs> now there has been some argument as to whether or not the tests were actually necessary or were they overzealous and indeed that is her contention that basically these tests were stupid and pointless and didn't reflect real world conditions also were very difficult to actually conduct therefore why bother just write in the margin yeah sure it passed and carry on Effectively, but these tests involve cooling the steel under under test to very 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 low temperatures. That requires cryogenic um, liquids, and then hitting it really hard to see what happens. Um, And when you see the temperatures that are involved, at least negative one hundred Fahrenheit, and going further downwards you may wonder okay well unless they're planning on fighting with a submarine in the vacuum of space why on earth do they need such a test to be done and the well the answer is actually there are a number quite a number of reasons why you would want to do this uh one of which is that whilst you probably won't get down into the negative hundreds of fahrenheit you're going to get surprisingly close in some circumstances Uh, for example i'm sure we've probably all seen those wonderful pictures that u.s navy occasionally likes to put up of submarines that have breached the ice near the north pole oh i'm not sure i'd want to do
2: that with them at the moment
0: no but the you know the seawater around the north pole is pretty cold the ice is also very cold but uh, the outside air is even colder And when you are exposed at the North Pole and the wind is whipping around in the dead of winter, you can find temperatures can drop to, and I'm sorry, I'm now going to switch over to British, to something in the region of minus 45 to minus 60 degrees Celsius with wind chill. So Mm -hmm. you're going to get surprisingly close to the test temperatures compared to what you might otherwise think. And I'm sure it doesn't need any explanation, but the North Pole in the middle of an ice pack is probably the last place you want your submarine's pressure hull to break. Because at that point, your survival is going to be measured in a matter of tens of seconds, assuming that you don't have the sheer blind luck for the water to freeze instantly the minute it comes through the hull and form a temporary plug which is probably your only hope for salvation. And I don't think if you are in a situation where your pressure hole has breached whilst you're poking through the ice at the North Pole, that there is going to be any deity looking out for you because you've clearly already annoyed someone. Um, it's just, no. But th- th- there are a number of other circumstances that dictate why you might want to test for this. It's not just the, okay, semi-unique conditions of let's go smashing through a polar ice cap, because that sounds like fun today. There are also issues with um, the brittleness of a steel. Now, the reason why that's important is in some ways related to, as we know, aircraft have metal fatigue, ascending and descending, to uh, to lower pressures and then coming back down to ground level. Submarines have a similar hull fatigue life cycle because they are going from atmospheric pressure on the surface to some rather interesting pressures further down. And that will work through the submarine's uh, hull lifetime. And, of course, deep down underwater, not just at the North Pole, it's also fairly cold. But what the test does by dropping the temperature so far down is it passes through what engineers know of as the uh, ductile brittle transformation stage and those of you who may have watched some of my videos will already know that that can be a major problem back in the age of sail just as they were going over to ironclads there wasn't an, an initial start at building iron warships before warrior and gloire about 10 15 years before in fact and that was all brought to a screaming halt because they tested iron plate on land against targets well as targets against guns and they found that shot punching through them because at this point it wasn't armor this was just kind of can we replace you know three foot of wood with an inch of iron which would actually be lighter and therefore better and they found that the cannonball would punch through the iron and there'd be, if you imagine if you drive a, well, not a pencil because it would probably break, but you dro- if you drove a biro or something similarly tough through a Coke can, you get a kind of a, a splayed tearing effect. It's an aluminium can. Um, <clears throat> but they discovered the cannonballs did similar things to the iron plate. It just tore through it. It's not very good if you're facing a cannonball on the other side, but what it did mean was that there was little to no splintering. And again, if you've watched one of my more recent videos, you know, splintering is actually a very serious problem. And so everyone was thinking, great, so we get to build lighter ships, we get to build stronger ships, that they don't flex as much. And when we get shot, the, a big cannonball is going to go through anyway. But this way, the only thing we really have to worry about is the cannonball and not a massive cloud of splinters. So it all seemed well then they built some ships they put them in the water some of them got shot at and they suddenly discovered that contrary to all tests on land there were massive chunks of razor sharp iron flying around in the form of splinters which was not good because that was actually even worse than the wood uh, and everyone was wondering what on earth was going wrong because every time they repeated the test on land they got punching and every time they repeated the test in the water they got splintering and it turns out it's all to do with this brittle ductile transformation. Um, an easy way to think about it might be, you know, if you have, let's say, um, a runner bean or, or a string bean, I guess, if you're in the States, maybe. Um, if you have that out defrosted sitting on your table, it's flexible, it's bendable. You can poke it and prod it, etc. You drop it on the ground, it's just going to flop. Um, but if you freeze it in in your in your freezer and then you hit it or drop it it'll snap and shatter and obviously in that particular case that's because the water has frozen inside the vegetable but that is the same effect you get with specific materials if you cool them too far they go from being ductile i.e bendable dentable malleable terrible all these things apply to that to being brittle can also make them very hard but they snap and splinter very easily and that can be a fairly major problem i mean you even have to think about stuff when you're operating the the northern reaches of the world or indeed some of the southern reaches you can have things like bridges where if you have a support pillar that's made of steel it might if let's say you hit it with a a car a car drives into it or a vehicle drives into it which you don't want to happen but does happen occasionally with rope bridges if you did that in the UK there might be a little dent in the steel it's not a particularly big issue if you do that in northern Norway in the middle of winter bits of that steel might snap off you now physically don't have as that much steel anymore the structure is compromised and the cracks may even spread further so it's a lot worse so this brittle ductile transition can be a major problem and for submarines obviously when they're experiencing either significant load events because they're punched up through a bunch of ice or they're experiencing significant load events because they're very deep down in the depths of the ocean well you want to know how your steel is going to perform if it happens to pass through that ductile brittle transformation because a pressure hull that is still ductile will flex and bend and compress with pressure a pressure hull that is has gone into its brittle stage will sit there and sit there and sit there and, sit there and then pop like a balloon when you put too much pressure on it which is again not a good outcome for a submarine um, so with all that in mind Hopefully you can now understand why the U.S. Navy might be interested to see how the steel they're building their submarines out of performs when it is very cold and therefore very brittle. Because where exactly this line is depends entirely on the, well, bearing line, steel is an alloy. It depends on the mixture of materials in question. Pure iron has one point cut and then as you make different mixtures of steel it will go that transition temperature can go up or down mostly down Um, but it's important to figure out what that performance is like by cooling it that much you ensure absolutely that you are getting that that performance and it's also that it's definitely brittle and it's also worst case scenario and that means that if your steel can perform up to certain specifications in that worst case scenario Then, you know, as you dial the temperature back a bit and you get back into sort of polar temperatures or deep subsea temperatures that your your steel has a lot of safety margin built in. So it can then take additional loads during that period without failing, because obviously bear in mind that deep underwater pressure or polar ice and wind loading is peacetime. your submarine is designed for war so your submarine may be having to deal with at some point explosions happening nearby while it's very deep underwater or it may be having to breach the ice when it's already been damaged and so on and so forth so you need to have that safety factor in place so that your submarine won't just fall apart the minute it takes so much as a dink and ends up in a hostile unfriendly environment so there's all that to consider there's also a separate line to talk about at some point <coughs> excuse me which involves because as i said steel is an alloy and modern steels especially the steels they use for submarine pressure holes will include a lot of, sort of interesting trace elements not just carbon and iron um, when you get steel down to very cold temperatures some of those elements can try to separate out and you can end up with faults developing inside the steel itself so it might look fine outside but inside it could be weakening And again you do that repeatedly dive rise dive rise dive rise and then one day you dive and you don't come up again but that's a much more technical and involved discussion we can probably save for another time but suffice to say there are plenty of good reasons why you would want to super cool your submarine steel and test it and make sure it passed those tests before it goes into your subs and if all of these tests have been falsified, well, if you've got a good, reliable supplier of submarine steel for twenty, thirty years—the past twenty or thirty years—then there's a reasonable chance that the subs will still perform up to spec. But you don't know that. If you change the- suppliers or the suppliers change staff, something could have happened. Or it could even be that most ninety-five percent of the steel is all fine but everyone has an off day there are always occasionally bad batches you know that's why quality control exists so you could have all your los angeles and ohios and virginias yeah maybe 70 of them are fine but maybe there's two or three out there that have got dodgy steel in them and who knows you don't know which ones they are you don't know how bad the steel is you don't know when it's going to fail all you and all you know is that at some point somewhere one or two of your subs best case scenario might be about to pop for no reason whatsoever that you can discern and uh well apart from anything else i think the families of the people who are serving on those subs are going to be just a teensy bit annoyed that um thanks to one person being lazy and not actually thinking ahead there might be a few ticking time bombs out there in the u.s submarine fleet hopefully there aren't but, but now you don't know. There's
2: two problems in the US system, OK, in, the, in this scenario, I can foresee. And I, I was very nice. I didn't interrupt much then because I wanted to preserve Drak NFL's voice. The problem number one, America has a habit of these things being built by not only the lowest common, uh, the, the lo- lowest bidder, but also the lowest bidder in a in a different states. Because they try and spread the work around as as part of the port barreling to get various centres to support the project, so, which means they do probably have multiple sources of steel, which may or may not be the best providers of the aforementioned steel. Uh, secondly, this is going to sound trouble. This is a it's a problem you come across a lot in the world when you're dealing with some of the things that people can't bring up within defense planning, the amount of time people presume they know better. And in this case, this energy, I can see their logic. I can see what they're putting forward. But as you've just quite eloquently and articulately put it, there is actually a logic to doing those tests. So... They should be done. But more importantly, if you're getting paid to do those tests,
1: then it doesn't matter if they're expensive or take a lot of time. You do them. You don't, it, it's going to sound strange, but if I'm buying something from someone and I'm paying
2: for them to test it then I'm not paying them to argue with me and tell me not to do the tests or, well, if they do want to make a case to me, you don't need to do that test, then fine, I'll listen to it. But if they don't argue with me not to do the
1: test, they just take the money and then don't do the tests, then that's lying. And again, the American system of getting steel from all sorts of sources kind
2: of depends on them having actually good quality control, which means doing these tests. Because you can't do it any other way. And it's not just the families who are going to be worried, there has got to be a lot of American senior officers who are currently looking at their submarine fleet, which is supposed to be their ace in the hole to deal with any of their potential problems and peer adversaries and go, have we
0: got
1: ticking time bombs
0: here? Yeah, and And the other thing, I mean, this is why engineering is such a complex subject, because everything we've discussed, and I appreciate I went on there for about 15 minutes without a break, but that's just touching the surface, the two most obvious elements of why you do a low temperature steel test. There's dozens more. I mean, just the lessons you can derive from the performance of steel under those kind of extremely cold conditions will inform all sorts of things up to and including things like how much of a life cycle your steel is going to have. You know, you're not going to directly tell, oh, well, this bit shattered or this bit, the dent in this was only three millimeters or cracks in this only went five millimeters or whatever. That in and of itself isn't going to tell you this steel will last I don't know, let's say 500 dives or something along those lines. But by collating all the data from those tests, it will actually give you some indication of that kind of stuff, which, you know, obviously it can have a very, very broad ranging implications. I mean, it can even be the kind of thing where, you know, 20, 30 years down the line, if there's a submarine shortage um, or if they're considering selling off some subs, the question of which subs should we modernize and overhaul and sell on um, or keep in the fleet, this kind of test becomes very pertinent because this, you might pass batches of steel where the te- those tests, amongst others, will indicate that your fatigue life cycle might last you 40 years. And you think, OK, well, the sub's are only supposed to be in service 30, 35 years. This is fine. But when it comes to modernization, if your sub's only going to have another five years, maybe, of lifespan, life you do not want to modernize or sell on that sub. But the next batch of steel might have come in of an unusually high quality, and that might indicate actually this thing's got 60 years worth of fatigue life cycle on it. Now, in regular service, if you're only expecting 35, 35 years of design life, either sub is fine. But one sub, is much, much more suitable for modernization and retention or selling on than the other. But now you've had a big pillar of your data set knocked out from underneath you. You don't necessarily know which one is which. And now obviously there is other tests that they do to the, the steel of the subs. You know They will get some indication of certain performance levels from other tests, which hopefully some other engineer hasn't sat there and gone, I don't feel like doing them, I'm just going to tick boxes. But this is a major part of the testing and it does represent a potential compromise because right now you're basically flying on. Well, I hope our supplier of substeel for the past 30 years has kept up consistent batch quality and hasn't had any unexpected turnarounds, (laughs) which I'm sure the suppliers of your substeel are very conscientious about their jobs. But I wouldn't hold my breath on any major manufacturing industry not having any screw ups in 30 years.
2: Thirty-six
0: years. Yeah, I mean, with UK, the UK has nine
2: election cycles, isn't
1: it?
0: Some, yeah, or more. I mean, the UK has has some very, 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 very safe railways. Some of the safest railways on the planet. We still have a rail crash every five or six years. Mm. (laughs) So not through anyone's particular fault, but you know, not not a good place to be. And I certainly wouldn't want to be in that particular engineer's shoes. In fact. As I, as I have told Dr. Clark in private separately, I did in fact end up um, leaving one job because I refused to engage in those kind of practices, even though the bosses told me I should, basically, because I didn't want to have this kind of thing hanging over me, although fortunately I wasn't working in the defense industry, so it wasn't quite as as serious as several hundred people deep under the water, but still, yeah. Uh, it's disappointing sometimes when someone's smart enough to get an engineering degree also shows a complete lack of ethics. Or possibly an overinflated sense of their own self-importance.
2: I'd say it's more that because ethics, uh, th- let's put it this way, it, 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 they are saying they didn't do it because they had reasons. Not they didn't think it was worthwhile doing, not because they were trying they were corrupt. They, they honestly believed themselves when they say that it, it's not worthwhile doing. And that's fine. That's your case. But then you go and tell the people you're not doing it, and you explain why you're not doing it in year one, and you allow them to make a decision because they're paying you. This is the, the this is the other thing. If you're being paid to do the tests, that you might think they're dumb, but you still do them.
0: Mm. It's like, in fact, that's one of the, the best this, this, please... the...
2: <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was going to say that's the best engineering job to have. When you think someone's giving you a dumb thing that doesn't actually need to be do- doing and, at, and is paying you lots of money for it, that would be. It. I'd probably still be in engineering if I could have found a job like that because I'd just get to do stuff without worrying uh, worrying overly much if it meant all that much. But as long as you're That's- giving me money, I'll I'll do I'll do whatever test you like. I'll I'll you know I'll. I'll You know, if if you want to pay me enough, I'll take your steel out to Stonehenge and align it with the rising moon on the winter solstice or something to see if the the ley lines and the fairies possess it. I mean, I have absolutely no belief in any of that nonsense, but if you're going to pay me, I'll do it. I won't stay at home. I want to keep that job. (laughs) I don't know. Who knows? I wanted uh, know. like... a billion shots, I might even end up with some possessed steel, then I could become a necromancer. I'm sure. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. <laughs> Get a Marvel uh, franchise let, movie let, deal.
2: Let's put it this way: it, it, this has even happened in academia and in teaching, because it's one course I, I I I go and teach on occasionally as a
1: contract lecturer, and they're a lovely university, but they insist on the
2: students doing a test as part of their course where they have to name all the major alliances and literally they have to just list out all the major alliances that that dot the world we're talking not the little minor ones we're talking things like africa union the european union nato all, all those sort of things right there's a list of 40 of these and every time uh, when i uh, when I've been there, and they've gone, "Yeah, oh yeah, today today you're doing that that, that test is going to be part of the lecture." I honestly look at them and go, "Why because yes, I agree you need to know about these things, but why regurgitating it as a list your these are second year students in no other than perhaps in exam questions, at no point are they going to have to regurgitate these all from memory. And whilst it's good to know about them, they're not actually asking you to actually t- explain what they're doing. It's not a not a, a thing which is, says, give the name of it and then tell me what it does. It's
1: literally just list out the names. Of these 40, you have to learn by rote. It doesn't make any sense. But I'm paid to be there.
2: I'm paid to do it. So I make the students do it. I may
1: occasionally wander around and offer loud spelling corrections. But. It's.
2: And do you know what's even worse? The test doesn't count for any percentage towards their final grade for the
1: module. So it's a pointless test, which is pointless in every single straight to the word. But you still do it because I'm paid to be there. It's part of the course. I'm paid to do it. I'm good. Yeah. Oh, well, well, with
0: that, um,
1: let's go to the long war.
0: Yes. So what are we, what are we referring to when it comes to the long war?
2: Well, um, this is going to sound strange, but I'm going to go for any war
1: which goes on beyond, I don't know, two weeks. Because, and this is the interesting, this is the where this has come from. This has come from
2: two, as I was talking about at the beginning. The idea that you are going to have all these super high-tech weapons. And there's this old quote, which I remember years ago, uh, where uh, I think it was, I'm not sure if it was... One of the famous scientists or engineers said, I know not what walls, the weapons of World War Three will be, but the ones of World War Four will be sticks and stones. Not quite that scenario I'm talking about. But we're talking and we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in a video and one where we were chatting that the Americans only have enough loadouts for maybe two times to load out their ships with anti-service missiles. Maybe two and a half, three times, if, depending on what's available and if they are actually prepared to
1: use SM ones, if they have them in stock. But the point is. That's not going to
2: last you that long in a conflict, because you think about it, you launch two missiles to engage pretty much any target. So if you're a daring class, with currently 48 missiles twenty four targets come out come your way boom boom boom, you're out of missiles. that could be one engagement
0: if you're lucky yeah, and someone only shows up with twenty four missiles <laughs> and this is
2: this is the scenario you're talking about, and yes, they'll probably show up with more missiles, but how big are their stocks of missiles so when bilge pumps talks about things like guns, and why we think you need to have guns on them, uh, guns on ships and why I that my tend to f- point of going I'd like a double gun and I'd like two double gun turrets forward, honestly, five inch or six inch guns on the bigger, especially the type
1: eighty threes, things like that. Not because <laughs> it's not because i am being old-fashioned
2: it's because i'm actually looking the future and going what can we actually build can we build shells fast pretty much can we build missiles quickly and can we build torpedoes quickly and um, i will leave that up to, uh, i will i will let my esteemed engineering colleague come in on this one but how quickly can you honestly build this stuff?
1: And do we have the production capacity for it?
0: Well, it depends on what kind of missiles you're building, to be honest. I mean, you can throw together, I mean, if you, there's all sorts of factors. I mean, if you've got a production line open, you can get stuff done pretty quickly, um, but there's still, you can only accelerate things so far. Um, If you don't have the production line open at that point, you've got to restart it. That's going to extend things a lot more. Also, um, the global nature of things, of trade, will make things more difficult, especially in any kind of significant conflict where trade lanes are likely to be disrupted. I mean, we've seen chaos in the past few months So everyone from GPU manufacturers to car manufacturers to, well, anything that needs a chip, which to be honest, these days is practically everything up to and including some forms of soft toys, um, are all affected by a chip shortage. There are places that make them in countries like the States or in Europe, but they only have a limited production capacity and some of them only make certain kinds of chips and some of those places may not currently make the chips that you need for your missiles and that's just the computer chips let alone you know the rocket fuel the ascensors, all the other electronics all of this comes from multiple different suppliers so it's not just a case of we have factory we make missile it's What about all the factories that make all your components? What about all the factories that make the components of those components? Because, you know, someone's going to be making the chips. Someone else is probably going to be putting the circuit boards together. And then those circuit boards will be assembled into the missile. Also, how many production chains are there that your enemy only has to disrupt one of? And you're a bit stuffed. Because I hate to break it to you. You can't just take like an Intel i7 and plug it into an SM2 and say, right, there you go. It's working now. So you can't just cannibalize everybody's home PCs or something like that, even if you might want to. Um back in the day in I mean, to a certain extent, you had these a certain some of these bottlenecks oh. back in World War I and World War II, which was in part what the U-boat war was all about, but Generally speaking, a lot of those things were a lot less complex. They required fewer steps and fewer suppliers.
2: Someone actually suggested to me the government would have to take your phones like they took iron railings for Spitfires in World War II.
0: Well, that'll be a recipe for civil unrest if there ever was one.
2: Well, also, it wouldn't work, and let's be honest, the iron for Spitfires didn't work Mm. either. Uh, Most of that iron went to bullets. Sorry. Railing Iron um, doesn't make good uh, spitfires.
0: No. Um, we knew a plane made mostly out of aluminium. <laughs> it didn't need so much steel. <sighs> uh.
2: Yeah. We'll get we'll leave that to one point. Most uh, you know, this is uh, the, the point is there are so many different things which can be disrupted. Mm. Yep. So then you're left with um which side of Poland is the only big ammunition production plant in europe Mm. do you think it's in the western side or eastern side of poland
0: i'm gonna guess by the nature of the question it's probably in the east
1: Mm -hmm.
0: (sighs) see this is like this is stuff on land i don't know things (laughs) about land 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 is a place that ships come from (laughs)
2: why do you think i am talking about A factory which produces bullets and shells
1: Mm. Can you think of where there is A similar factory in the rest of Europe
0: Sweden probably, Bofors probably make some Yeah Mm, Probably some in East Germany Well, well, Mm. The eastern part of what is now Germany No No
2: they got got outsourced
0: uh why doesn't this surprise me
2: (laughs) they have the testing labs but they don't actually build them themselves (sighs) you haven't mentioned italy france or the uk yet probably sensible
0: no (laughs) no i well can consider considering that our uh, mod production officials admittedly okay the um the sniper rifle in question was is a, is a is a pretty nice weapon, but considering that our production officials managed to be fooled by some by a couple of guys who rented out a, um, a a empty industrial estate module and filled it with some tables and prototypes to win the contract for the current British Army sniper rifle, I'm not exactly surprised that we don't. We probably don't have any mass ammunition production capabilities. Yeah. And well, C viper and C Scepter MBDA stuff. So that's probably the in France.
1: Mhm. So
0: yeah, it's um. And and to be honest, like even if even if all your supply lines are perfectly functional,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you still have a rather major problem in any kind of long war scenario in that these things are vastly more complex to put together because yes you can have a mass production line that can turn out cars at the rate of dozens if not hundreds a day but all of that requires a lot of investment and the investment is comes from the fact you're selling tens of thousands of cars and you're going to be selling various kinds of cars for years if not decades at a time so that's where you get all the investment back for those kinds of things whereas for um when you're looking at missiles yes the US navy might have 5000 plus standard missiles in stock but one they're an outlier um for obvious reasons and two um those missiles were built over the course of 40 plus years yeah factories Line- turn out cars in those quantities in months so There may be, they may well be production lines, but they're not gonna be anywhere near as automated and anywhere near as fast as you might think from civilian factories these days, because there's no, well, the money isn't there to invest in that kind of production capability. And two, even if there was, it's against those companies interests as private industries to do so, because, if you have a factory that can produce 5,000 standard missiles in six months, then the U.S. Navy and will say, yes, great, fine, fantastic, it's an order for 5,000, and in six months they have all the missiles and they don't need you anymore. Whereas if you have your 5,000 missiles and you say, well, we can produce them at 50 or 100 per year, well, you now have decades worth of business lined up, so you're going to make a lot this more is- money.
2: And this is why I tell people that actually arms manufacturer is uh, manufacture is now a cottage industry. Britain does have the ability to produce bullets, but they're 7.62, and frankly, I don't think there is a single frigate or destroyer in the world which can be taken apart with 7.62. Uh, <laughs> if you are, if if you, it would take a lot of machine guns and very close quarters. In fact, we might actually be uh, we might actually be returning to the Royal Navy's traditional favorite tactic of boarding.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, in theory, you can take down any ship if you hit it with enough seven point six two. Because eventually, the sheer number of bullets lodged in its hull
1: mm-hmm. and
0: superstructure will cause it to capsize. Just I add mass. It,
1: yeah, Might
0: take a while though.
1: Yeah. So yes, we're,
2: we're we're treating this a bit humorously, but it's a serious thing which you have to start getting into a national defense com- conversation and you have to start thinking about because we're of course been working on our rate, a ship rating system, we are looking at uh, looking at countries and their various you know defense arrangements etc, but it comes down to what are they going to actually be using once they start fighting
0: mm.
2: and this is here's the thing we're talking about putting hypersonics on zoom, which is great. But does anyone think we're going to be producing a lot of hypersonic missiles? Does anyone someone told me there are going to be thousands of them used in any future conflict and I was going when's that conflict going to be 2200 2300?
1: If you look at the rate of production of conventional missiles we've got, let alone hypersonics, they're not exactly fast.
0: No, well, they're fast once they're built. They're not fast to build. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And yes,
2: companies do claim that governments and often have agreements with governments that they, the government, pays a premium in order to provide to maintain a surge capacity of construction. But again, as we were talking about earlier, that is a surge capacity on paper. That is a surge capacity which exists in theory based on the supply lines not being disrupted, because most modern factories, when they're building missiles, etc, are more assembly halls than they are factories. There is very little actually made in that factory. It's mostly components come from elsewhere
1: and are put together. So unless you're going to tell me that the lovely people who make the sea sector
2: missile keep a whole lot of spare missile stock to produce hundreds of missiles sitting around in their factory there is no security of supply and Drac, what are the odds you think that's the case
0: considering everybody up to and including supermarkets on which we rely for food to survive all love the just-in-time method which, to be honest, ninety-five percent of all industries that use the just in time method completely miss what it's actually supposed to be. Um
2: oh, you mean would, you know misinterpret it for their financial gain?
0: Oh yes, of course. But yeah, I would say the chances of having any significant backup stock ready to produce more, more weapons is slim to none. Just in just in time was supposed to be a case of you produce what people want when they need it, you have enough stock uh, and spares, etc. to accommodate changes and variations in demand, And but you don't have massive warehouses of overstock, and you bring in your uh, new supplies at a regular rate. The idea of of just-in-time as originally envisaged was to allow you to have a continuous and steady supply of material which keeps your costs down because you're not having to vary your orders um, whilst being able to accommodate the ups and downs of market demand which obviously means that you make the most amount of money possible whilst minimizing not eliminating your storage unfortunately most people these days seem to have missed the middle part and assumed that just in time means we order stuff as we need it, and magically hope that the uh, intervening transport and production capabilities further up the supply chain are always going to be intact, which, um, yeah, let's just say the events of the last couple of years have rather proved that's not the case.
1: And the Uh. trouble is militaries
2: don't run on just-in-time logistics. And this is your other big problem. This is why I actually almost wonder if two weeks is me being generous for missiles running out. Because let's put it this way, you're either going to have missiles running out because they're going to be using them. And think of the stocks of weapons, which they went through in the Falklands War, huge stocks of weaponry were gone through. But also think about it from the perspective of a submarine commander they have what 24 torpedoes on them with mm-hmm. that's not included that that's uh, in 24 let's say they've got torpedoes they've got to make sure of um of um what do they call those uh, decoys and various other things they've got on that. Mm-hmm. now now if I know I'm going to get resupplied with torpedoes, I can be fairly free about using those to
1: attack my targets. But what happens if I'm not? Do I want to go home without any torpedoes in the hold?
2: If I'm not sure I'm going to get resupplied and I might not get sent out again?
1: Because are you going to send a submarine out to sea without any torpedoes?
0: Not unless you really like losing several billion pounds of investment.
1: And a couple of hundred crew, well, Mm.
2: And, okay, let's uh, let's go more seriously. What happens if you don't have any missiles for your ships? Do you still send them out? With guns only? Because do the ships, do modern ships have enough guns that you can really would, even if it is, if both sides are down to guns, do modern ships have enough guns that
1: you really want to do that? Not really. So. uh, Here is the other option. There are two options for this
2: scenario. One, the long war is a figment of everyone's imagination because no one can actually do it. Or two. If you're a major competitor and you want to fight America, et cetera, and win. All you need to do. Is Function your supplies to survive three weeks of a long war?
0: <clears throat> and to be honest, um, just look at, what, the last 40 years of conflict? You can, even though we haven't had a "quote unquote" high-intensity peer-to-peer pro- conflict in the past 40 years, look at the situation where supposedly first line first world militaries have gone into more limited wars and see what's happened. Because yes, you know, the, the Royal Navy and the the army and, and the RAF went into the Falklands against Argentina, which, let's face it, was not exactly high on anybody's list of major military powers. And yes, Britain won the Falkland War Falklands War. But have you seen the state of some of the ships right after the um, right after the Falklands was regained, how little ammo they had, how basically they on the verge of falling apart? They were there was a reason there was a massive load of Royal Navy ships rushing south at the end of the war. And it wasn't because they were worried the Argentinians were about to come get their second wind. It was because they needed to relieve a lot of the ships that were out there that were basically in a case of well, we need to get back to port in a couple of weeks, or we're going to fall apart and sink where we where we float. Mm. Um, and they were
2: out of ammunition. <laughs> they 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 really didn't want to do a actual opposed attack on Port Stanley because they were pretty much out of ammunition to support it.
0: And you know whilst parts of the falklands war were very high intensity and obviously no disrespect to anybody who fought in that conflict as things overall stood in compared to what kind of wars could have broken out in the 1980s it was a relatively speaking low intensity conflict and the argentines had single digit numbers of exorcets to throw at the royal navy if you'd had uh can somehow manage to engineer a conventional war with russia there would have been more russian anti-shipping missiles flying in the first wave of the first attack than the argentinians launched during the entirety of the Falklands. um and and you know and that's an example of probably about the most intense war that has occurred with involving a major power in the last forty years, I mean, you've got the Russians versus the Georgians, but that, or well, a, that's a almost entirely land and sea conflict, except for the, sorry, a land and air conflict, except for a minor bit where the Russians showed up with some missiles bigger than most of the Georgian navy, um, which wasn't exactly.
2: <laughs> Not exactly sporting of them, is it? Uh,
0: it. I was going to say more like not even so much using a hammer to crush a bug more like coming over with an industrial pile driver to crush a bug at that point i mean i to be honest i think the russians actually came out the loser in those engagements because i have a distinct suspicion those missiles cost more than the georgian navy did (laughs)
1: um so
0: yeah an exchange but still quite vaguely amusing in a slightly uh, gallows humor way and then you've got, and, and those, those Falklands and the uh, South Ossetia War, relatively relatively speaking short conflicts, when you look at the, and, and those I guess they give you a bit more of an idea of what would happen in terms of ammunition, fuel, endurance, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I suppose you could probably look at the Gulf, first Gulf War as well to a certain degree. But then the other end of things is you have actual long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but, and I suppose if you want to go back into the 90s Chechnya, but you have those long wars, the war, as in the war goes on for a long time, you're not fighting anything close to a peer opponent. But look at the state of the militaries at the other end. Now, you know, yes, the US Navy is still there. The Royal Navy is still there, um, the armies and air forces are still there, but look at the capabilities they've lost. You know, look at the the capability of the Russian military forces before the start of the Chechnya conflict, look at the capabilities of the US Navy in 2000, look at the capabilities of the Royal Navy in 2000, um, in terms of relative strength and then and to be honest even look at the capabilities of their air forces and their armies in terms of tanks and fighters and bombers and all sorts of things you need to fight a peer opponent and then now at the other at 20 years down the line look at the cap- relative capabilities now you know the, the the fight was never those fights were never to a scale that you were in danger of actually physically running out of stuff although it did cause a small arms ammunition shortage at one point yeah uh, which incident the the weird thing the weird way i found out about that was when um stargate sg1 in its later seasons had to switch over from just using p90s to all sorts of other different weapons and it turned out it was because of the wars in iraq and afghanistan were eating up so much ammunition production capability they couldn't get enough blanks for the P90 to sustain having them all on the show. So they had to switch to a bunch of other guns and distribute their their blank cartridge acquisition process. But I mean, so if if something like that can cause that kind of shortage, and then you look at all the things that have been sacrificed over the past 20 years, basically because the defense funding has been going into counterinsurgency warfare, you know, even that shows in a long in in a long war with a completely non-peer opponent, they've managed to grind that non-peer opponent has managed to grind down the first-tier warfighting capabilities of a of major powers. So yeah, yeah. If you if you combine high-intensity conflict with a peer opponent, you can't sit there and tell me you're going to have much left to fight with after. A, any significant length of time um i mean look look, look at look at things like how, how many zoom walls did they want to build and then didn't um the fact look at the the things they've had to cancel to keep the columbia class going this is all the u.s because it's the it, they're the biggest yeah. one so it's easiest to point at you know, but you can look-
2: also point to the british who cancelled three type 45s and arguably cancelling them there was a lot of things made about oh there's this reason that reason but arguably it's because they didn't want to raise the defense budget while still fighting the war in afghanistan so we only have we only have six type 45s rather than nine
0: and we don't have any e3s anymore we spent almost a decade without carriers at sea got rid of the
2: and look at how slow we have been in ordering the F-35s again, because we didn't want to raise the budget because, well, we were so busy concentrating on Iraq and Afghanistan. But, you know, it made it, it basically the, the politicians want to have a strong defense without having to pay for it. The
0: yeah, number of tanks has probably got, I think it's gone down by about two thirds to three quarters. Number of active uh-huh. service tanks.
2: I think it's probably... I think actually it's probably gone down to about 80%. We're down to, what, 120, 160?
0: If we're lucky. And some Not of those are in day. Canada. <laughs> um, we're yeah, well-placed
2: as, if we want to invade Canada. We've already got tank yeah.
0: the tanks down. The US... I mean, the US has gone down... They've got physically got less operational carrier battle groups. Mm. So, I mean, obviously in... in in a peer to peer conflict you'd imagine they'd put the defence budget up a little bit but it takes a while as we've been discussing with production capabilities it takes a while for the money hose to have any significant effect on your warfighting capability because you've well, got it, there's a lag to actually place orders and get things produced if indeed that, you even can produce them
2: that's the thing misunderstood about world war II. people think america december the 7th they get attacked and um, 80 years ago this year it's going to be they get Americans get attacked, and then the money hose is turned on, and they have this huge navy coming into service. Actually, it takes about a year to two years for the the navy actually to be massive. And I don't want to shock anyone, but actually, the money hose has been turned on about a year to two years beforehand. Arguably, the money hose gets turned on pretty much starts being t- uh, starts being loosened in 1937 1939 it goes up and especially helped by britain and france and other countries fighting european war ordering from factories which helps pay extra things to expand the american factories and then oh japan's getting aggressive
1: they're turning up the hose again and it takes time you can't just magic these things into existence. And this is the real problem when we start talking about a long war. I don't
2: think anyone's really designing their ships and designing their forces and thinking about it
1: from the perspective of what are we going to be fighting week three with. If we're lucky,
0: harsh language. If we're lucky. Because if that case, yes, we just station Royal Marine warrant officers on the corner of each ship and we're assured eternal victory
2: (laughs) yeah but but if we're getting into this sort of seriously the the trouble is and we already as i mentioned earlier and you and i sort of agreed on you don't want to deploy the ships to sea if they've got no missiles they've got no torpedoes will the politicians allow you to keep the ships at home or will they want you have a ship going out there doing something if we look at everything else that's happened how often do politicians uh, the mom, it looks like you're doing something, even if you're not able to do something. So how often do you get told you have to deploy a ship? You have to do this. If we look at the current COVID crisis, how much has been focused on looking like
1: they're doing something rather than actually doing something. And this is the big problem. This is what gets scary
2: and gets worrying for me. Because I know those facts. I know those figures. I know the reality and I have friends and who are involved, who could well be sent. And you sit there and look at it and go, there is no backup in. In the interwar years in the 1920s and 30s, Britain spent. The equivalent of billions building up oil depots around the world, to supply its fleet for war. They also company that with ammunition depots and yes, Singapore fell, but this was not Britain being silly or tied to bases. This was quite sensible. They were basically thinking that they were going to have to cover in any war the time between the war actually starting. And if it goes on for long, them actually
1: starting to get the supplies up to the requirement they need to support military operations. I don't think, barring perhaps the Chinese and maybe even the North Korean
2: governments, there is a single government in the world today which is doing that. And the Chinese, I'm not even sure they are, because honestly, they might talk a big
1: game, and they certainly do, are looking like they're pushing. But there is a big difference between looking like you're pushing for a long war
2: capability and actually having a long war capability. Because yes, I have you have a nice the Type Fifty Five, which has which is technically a destroyer, as they classify it, but which has roughly one hundred
1: twelve VLS. So, how many Type Fifty Fives does the Chinese Navy have?
0: I think they're building thirteen, something like that. Mhm.
2: Their aim is to have sixteen. They've got thirteen under construction, free in service,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so that is,
1: to be honest, sixteen times one hundred and twelve. So that's what sixteen hundred uh, missiles.
0: That's about about that.
1: Yeah
2: and that's one loadout. So you want to load them out twice. That's 3200 missiles. Three times, that's 4800 missiles. And that's not including all the various variations of the Type 52s that they've got in service, not including all the various variations of our ships that they've got 25. Uh, type 52s in service, 52 Ds,
1: and they can each carry 64 missiles. It's The point we're making is that everyone is going to be subject to the same pressures and everyone is going to be in the same issues. And no one... And that sounds very big. And so no one. Well, let's put it this way. We all know this issue. We all know this exists. But none of us really are tackling it. Um, I don't have a solution. Well, we all have a sort of solution. We'd spend more on defense spending, but that's preaching
2: to the choir. But honestly, it's more a case of you have to have a realistic approach to it. If you don't want to spend more on defense spending, that's fine, but you need to start thinking about the long war in the designer ships. You need to start functioning in what can we build in the UK? Can we build shells? Can we build, if we can't build missiles on our modern missile system, can we build shells? If that's case, then we have to sort of start thinking right then. A modern warship. Yes, we'll still have all the missiles. We'll put in all the missiles we can.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But do we go for a double set a pair of double six inch guns on the front? so that if they do run out of missiles well, she's still got four six inch guns and some forty millimeter so she's
0: still she's not exactly impotent and it's the it's the it's logistics it's the yeah unremarked side of things that will always do you in because if you look back at the age of sail or even the 19th century or even the early 20th century a good chunk of the royal navy's extended capability to fight wars wasn't because of necessarily the sheer number of ships it had but because it had such a massive system of overseas bases and a massive system of storage in the uk and in those various overseas locations and it cost a fortune if you look at the navy estimates each year it huge huge sums were spent maintaining storage areas and infrastructure and dockyards all over the place and a surprisingly small percentage of the overall budget went on the ships themselves or even the crew um because they recognised, following a very long series of wars, going all the way back to the Anglo-Dutch War, that you needed to have all of this backstop, the infrastructure, the supplies, the ammunition, the guns, the spare masts, yards, rigging, and later engine parts and shells. And that's what allowed the Royal Navy to keep going um, long enough that the industry could catch up to continue to top up its supplies and without that you you have an awful lot of problems i mean i recently did a a video about the franco-prussian war and you know again okay fair enough you're not necessarily going to solve the franco-prussian land war with a navy but france had the second largest fleet of ironclads in the world by a considerable margin the Prussians, or I guess the North German Confederation at that point, had five. And two of them weren't particularly worth having, really. But by the end of the...
2: I'd say three weren't particularly worth having, but yes, you're
0: <laughs> generous. But by the end of the conflict, which didn't go on for all that long, especially by the standards of 19th century wars, um, <laughs> the Prussian Navy, of all things, was actually, if anything, getting one up on the French Navy. And in part, that was largely because of a lack of logistics from the French side. They didn't have uh, a system to supply coal. They didn't have a system to um, to, to you know, rotate their ships. The, their crew requirements depended on people who weren't in France half the time. So all of a sudden they were faced with undercrewed ships who didn't have any real means of supplying their logistics. And it turns out that having all the powerful, shiny battleships in the world didn't really mean a lot if they couldn't go anywhere.
2: And the other thing to get into it, because we've talked about this a few times, the difficulty of supplying resupplying VLS at sea. Pretty much at the moment, because no one has actually got a working ship, a working system in stock. I don't think anyone's actually got the VLS, Mark 41 VLS crane still in service.
0: I think some of the early Arleigh Burks still have one.
2: They might still have one, but, you know, it's I, 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 I would probably count the number of times they probably practiced in the last 20 years on one hand or cumulatively for all of them. The thing is, if you're talking about shells and 40 millimeter ammunition and these sort of things, you can actually resupply a ship at sea.
1: We can move that from res- a resupply ship to ship. Now, this is I'm
2: not saying don't have the technology or that the missiles are bad or anything like that. I'm saying the reality is the missile construction system we've got does not lend itself to being able to rapidly produce them. And the Amer- even the Americans who can probably, were probably playing well, you know, all our stuff is built in Amer-
1: America and built with internal lines of supply. That's lovely, but um, how secure is that? How like, how difficult
2: is it for me to, uh, for a major power if you're in a warden to disrupt those lines of supply? to i don't know target your railways
1: or manage to blow up a few road bridges and there's a problem here because if they do a conventional
2: strike well we can sit there and go oh of course
1: they, they can't reach america can't they If you're prepared to put a bomber in a one-way str- uh, in a one-way mission, what it doesn't even have to be a bomber; it could be a special forces team. Hmm. Sneak across a border, steal a car, go for a drive. But so what? The the thing is. I honestly
2: don't believe people have been designing for the long war in ships even towards the end of the world of, of the Cold War. And in fact, I would say you stop designing for the long war ships the moment you start going for single gun turrets. Because then all you're thinking about is, oh, it'll just be doing naval gunfire support. That's all we have it for that. And having a gun. You're not thinking, hang on, what happens if we run out of missiles that then becomes our long range air defense, we better have a decent rate of fire for it. Because that gun is redundancy. This is the thing about the deck gun. It's your redundancy. It's your backup for if you're out of long range air missiles, if you're out of landed strike missiles, if you're out of anti ship missiles, And you probably want to be in that scenario. You probably are trying to get the out of dodge as quickly as possible in that scenario. But you want something. Because something to back you up and provide you with a little bit of defense
1: is better than having nothing. Because nothing means you have no chance and you are gone.
0: Yeah, it's... sorry, my voice. We're going
1: is... to
2: have to go. We're going to have to come with a cheery note to finish this off on, but because uh, I think we've gone down a bit of a dark space. This is what happens when we don't have Jamie here.
0: Please
2: send messages to Jamie and tell him never to leave us alone again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're spiralling into depression.
2: <laughs> I'm spiralling into a second bottle of Iron Brew.
0: Now That's dangerous. Yeah. Uh, At some point, at some point, you'll you'll flip over to having some blood in your sugar system. You can join me in that. (laughs) I
2: have blood in my sugar system. Look, the last time the doctor actually drew my uh, drew my iron brew from my veins. (laughs) They were, you know, quite they were quite proud of me. But I managed to have quite such a large content, a content of our Iron Brew content without, you know, and still kept my hair naturally
0: blonde. Mm. Oh.
2: Thank you well, for listening.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, on a positive note, if anyone out there is paying any attention, that means we get more shiny, whizzy, flashy, explosive things in the future, which can only be good.
2: We can hope so. I, you see, the thing is, every time it comes back to the debate over the single order double guns i usually get people go but it's a maintenance issue and you go yeah but is it worth it because it doubles your rate of fire well we only use it for naval gunfire support really how many vls do you have how many missiles do you have for surface air defense oh we're carrying 24 or 32 right then so after you've had been attacked by 12 or 16 targets what do
1: you have left Mm. Are, are you going to be depending entirely on your seaweeds for protection? No, I suggest you get. Uh, I suggest you double up the gun. Anyway, <laughs> on that
2: cheery note,
0: on that cheery note, we shall. Uh, yeah, we'll try and be a little bit more cheerful next week when I might be able to speak.
2: We are doing. We have got a special under production on Task Force Zed. So you know Z. So we are. Parcel. Uh, uh, we are do- we are doing that. That's going to be not cheery
0: at all. No, mm. oh, well,
2: possibly there's going to be a section when we talk about repulse and her dancing. That will be cheery.
0: Dance, dance, torpedo revolution.
2: Yeah. <laughs> all right. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Welcome to the bilge pumps where a bunch of naval geeks
1: spout off.